Welcome to Notes from the Field, brought to you by Noeo Science. All right, welcome to Notes from the Field, everybody. I'm your host, Will Boyd. Gordon Wilson is out gallivanting. Uh, in the deep south swamps, looking for the elusive, possibly extinct ivory-billed woodpecker. And so I'm just waiting by my phone for a photo of Gordon in a canoe and uh, this big, massive old tupelo or uh, some type of uh, cypress tree with a cavity in it and, and an ivory build uh, uh, just perched there. And so, Gordon, please send that photo. I hope this creature isn't extinct and you get to find it. <laughs> um, and John Rimmer's with me, who was on the show last week. We were, uh, we were chatting with John about uh, getting kids outside and excited about exploring nature. John's an MFA student. Uh, almost done, right, John, at NSA? Oh, almost. It uh, doesn't feel that way, but I, uh, the deadline is looming. Um, <laughs> the, the metaphor everybody was using is that you know, the horse has sighted the barn. So okay. my, uh, my pace is picked up and, and uh, I'm on my way down to the finish line. That's awesome. Very cool. Well, I appreciate you joining me. John's out of Richmond, Richmond, Virginia, which is a fun place to think about. Uh, I've spent a little time there in the past. And so we're, we're, we're kind of coming back to this idea of, um, uh, you know, why, why is it, why is it hard to get, uh, get out in, into nature with kids or what are, what are our obstacles to doing that? And how can we, how can we better do that as parents in trying to provide some encouragement for parents? Uh, uh, we should want to do that. We are taking dominion by understanding of the Lord's creation. And he's, he's, he's really ministering to us while we do that. Um, and so I thought it might be an interesting place to start in doing some quoting from Louvre. Richard Louvre uh, wrote the book Last Child in the Woods. I think it was early 2000s or, or mid-90s. Um, and while it's definitely not the gospel, I think he, uh, he has some pretty good points here. And so I thought it might be helpful to have a little historical context for why is this even a problem? Why, why, is, why is there supposedly a problem of getting kids out and interacting with nature? Um, and so Louvre, early on in the text, he starts to talk about a pronouncement in 1893 uh, where the, uh, the American frontier was officially declared uh, uh, dead. There was no longer a frontier line. We'd passed that point of, of development as a nation. And then he fast forwards us to 1993 um, where he says that a second frontier uh, is now being um, extinguished or, or fading away, and 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 the third one is appearing. And so I'll pick up from uh, where he where he starts here. Um, Louvre says Turner's 1893 pronouncement found its counterpart in 1993. His statement was based on the results of the 1890 census. The new deep marcation line was drawn from the 1990 census. Eerily, 100 years after the Turner. After Turner and the U.S. Census Bureau declared the end of what we usually consider the American frontier, the Bureau posted a report that marked the death of the second frontier and the birth of a third. That year, as the Washington Post reported, in a symbol of massive national transformation, the federal government dropped its longstanding annual survey of farm residents. Farm population had dwindled so much from 40% of U.S. households in 1900 to just 1.9% in 1990. 
that the farm resident survey was irrelevant. The 93 report was surely as important as the census evidence that led to Turner's obituary for the, for the frontier. If sweeping changes can be captured in seemingly trivial benchmarks, the decision to end the annual report is one. Huh. Yeah. Will, let's see. Uh, do you know where the frontier lines were drawn uh, at the times of these surveys? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, it makes me think, because, uh, you know, being here on the East Coast, uh, when I hear about the frontier, I'm always assuming uh, something far out in the Louisiana Purchase. And then as I, you know, as I grew up and studied, you realize that what they thought of as the frontier over here on this side of the country was kind of the places where, you know, where I go as we speak, the Appalachian Mountains and uh, into Tennessee and through um the Cumberland Gap and these kinds of things. And and I know it, it got pushed out, but I was just curious if you knew the actual borders of where they had drawn those lines, uh, you know, as we grew as a nation. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting question. I don't, I, it'd be good to look at a map. I haven't done that. My, my guess would be that, yeah, there's probably a, a place-based bias towards where that line might be. Um, and then also, you know, we were, we were seeing development from, from the West Coast moving east um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, for a period of time there too. So you know, and then uh, those those wild places that still remain, you know, I guess it got, it all comes back to defining your terms, right? What what do they technically mean by the frontier there? And in the, I think that first frontier line is a little bit uh, ambiguous, but that second one's interesting, more of a more of an economic or economic, I would say, and just where people live. Um, you know, no longer are, are most families agrarian and, and no longer do most families have a little family farm. And so, that's right. yeah, Louvre really sees that as significant. Um, I'll keep reading here just a little bit more to set the stage for us. And then okay. we'll jump into some, some story, uh, some storytelling and sharing. Um, he says, this new symbolic demarcation line suggests that baby boomers, those born between 1946 and 1964, may constitute the last generation of Americans to share an intimate familial attachment to the land and water. Many of us now in our 40s are older, knew farmland or forests at the suburban rim, and had farm family relatives. Even if we lived in an inner city, we likely had grandparents or other older relatives who farmed or had recently arrived from farm country during the rural to urban migration of the first half of the 20th century. For today's young people, that familial and cultural linkage to farming is disappearing, marking the end of the second frontier. The third frontier is populated by today's children. And then he goes on to say, uh, not yet fully formed or explored, this new frontier is characterized by at least five trends. A severance of the public and private mind from our food origins, a disappearing line between machines, humans, and other animals, an increasing intellectual understanding of our relationship with other animals, the invasion of our cities by wild animals, and the rise of a new kind of suburban form. So he, this is the stage that he says we are in um, and links most of this, most of this just because, you know, we, uh, God created, he created all of this incredible uh, sustenance for us, all of, all of the land, all of the water, all of the air. And it's, it's, it's what we did for so long. I mean, we, we, all of our work and play and food and entertainment and fellowship and sustenance, uh, kept us outdoors up until, up until recently. Yeah. That's an interesting point that he makes there too. I like, 
it's almost like the third frontier that he's describing is isn't so much a, a hard boundary that has been placed on nature itself or on the outdoors, but it's it's almost a cultural barrier that we've placed on it ourselves. Hmm. Almost uh, it reminds me of uh, uh, is it is it Brave New World where they talk about our where books won't need to be banned because a time will come when nobody wants to read them. Mm. And when you think about the book of nature, I think we are mm. almost in that stage where it's, it's not that we're forbade from going outside um, and going into the King's woods, but we, we just have no interest. We have no interest in going outside and we've made it a frontier unto ourselves. Wow. Yeah. No, that, that's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting point. Louv talks about interviewing. He did a whole bunch of focus groups and he interviewed families around the country uh, and groups of families in neighborhoods. And one of the quotes he uses early on is, uh, a, a contrasting this one girl who really relied on being outside just for her emotional well-being. Um, uh, he contrasted her with a boy whose who, who's quip was, well, why would I go outside? There's, there's more electrical sockets in here. You <laughs> oh, know? my. Yeah. Well, he's not wrong. So. <laughs> <laughs> he's not wrong. Yeah, but he, uh, there's, a, there's an imbalance there. And yeah. uh, I think that's... I think that's uh, I think we're in a unique position uh, as Christians to be able to to strike that balance um, um, as as best we can to to honor God in in engaging in all the things he's given us to do. Um, That's a great point, I, I think, especially as Christians, because we don't just have the privilege of, of going outside. But in, in many ways, we have the responsibility of caring for the world that God has made in the sense that we are to exercise dominion. We, we are stewards of the, wor- of the world and we can't just leave it to itself. We, we have an obligation to take care of it. It's it, the wild places don't, don't always do um, so well when left unto themselves as, you know, against popular um, popular thinking. Um, oftentimes it takes, uh, it takes us um, wisely managing things to help things flourish, you know, and, and things like that. Yeah. Amen. Amen. And so you you put forward uh, a theme for us today, John, and um, assuming that we're all on board with with what we've talked about so f- so far as as parents, especially. Um, and mm-hmm. this is moms and dads. We have we have the task of of really being guides. Um, and so how can we or what are some ways that we can guide our children into into desiring to spend time in in God's creation, desiring to care for it, desiring to understand it. Um, and so we're going to be sharing some of, some of the, th- the things we've uh, discovered and learned over the years of, of getting out into the, into the woods and streams with our kids. And hopefully some of those will resonate with, with our listeners. Oh, that's right. Mm. I can start John, if you'd like. Oh yeah. yeah okay. I'll absolutely. just jump, jump right in here. Um, you know, I, I, I tried to think back. I, I sat down with my wife and uh, a couple of my kids earlier today and just kind of asked them what were the most, what, what have been the most meaningful uh, times that we've had out outdoors together. And, and so some, some different comments came from, from them. And so I tried to put them in some, into some different categories here. And one of the categories that I came up with was, um, you know, when, when I was, before I had kids, I was, I only wanted to go out if I could do some type of epic backpacking trip. 
You know, that was okay. what I, that was what I kind of esteemed as the most, most pure form of outdoor recreation. And so Liz and I would go to wild places prior, prior to being married to spend a lot of time with a backpack on hiking all over, backpacking all over. And so, uh, I had to, uh, I had to adjust my expectations once we started having kids. Um, and so I, I had to, I had to come around to the idea that, you know, car camping is actually an okay thing to do. Um, which right. is, which is kind of funny. I was I was a snob basically, um, and so uh, once I realized that car camping was a great way to experience things, and everyone could have fun, that that became a key. So for new parents out there, you want to make sure your kids have fun, and uh, John does yeah, a good right. job of describing that in his uh, Middle Earth by Montero, uh, which we'll hopefully talk a little bit more about today. Um, okay, but yeah. having, having a kid on your back, having one of those backpacks where you can pop your kid in there and go on a hike, uh, going, going car camping and, um, doing things that are achievable. I would say for me, for my experience as a parent, that was huge, uh, right. to, to making sure that I was still getting out regularly and, and enjoying, um, yeah, enjoying I would agree nature. with that. My wife and I both, um, we had to recognize, uh, that the pace of life had to change. Uh, when kids came along, I think kids are in some way, they're an accelerant. They really put your life in a fast track, but in other ways, they, they, they are a necessary ballast to slow you down. And I think mm. it, in some ways it, it improves it even for, it improves the experience outside, even for adults, because what I realized uh, is that when I had to slow down to the pace of my children or to the capabilities of my children, yeah, it, it made me kind of um, hover over things that I would breeze past before, mm. um, kind of, you know, giving you that moment to kind of chew on where you're at and what you're, you know, where, you know, where you might be on a, on a hike or on a camping trip or at the beach. And, you know, it, there's, there's, there's a lot there sometimes that you would miss because you, you know, you're, you know, going from point A to point B and, uh, you kind of miss everything in between there yeah. and the kids, would slow you down enough to where it's like, Oh, this is a, uh, there's actually some fun things to do here when you got to stop every two hours on a road trip versus just driving eight straight hours on the interstate. Right. And, um, you know, so that, I think that the, uh, it's kind of a, I wouldn't say a mixed blessing, but it's definitely, you know, the, to change your gears is, is not, it's not necessarily a, uh, a step back or a, yeah. or a step down. In some ways, it's actually an improvement because, you know, I, I learned this. I grew up doing martial arts and different things. And I, you know, I, as a kid, you, you get good at it, especially if you watch enough Ninja Turtles and stuff. And <laughs> the, um, But I learned one of the best lessons I learned is that when I was uh, I was in class one time and uh, I was asked to show somebody how to do something and I I couldn't translate. I knew how to do it, you know, with no problem. But when I tried to translate it to the to the other student, you know, I realized that it was really hard to explain or to to transfer the the information. And my uh, instructor at the time, you know, he he kind of pointed out to me. He said, "You don't really know something until you're able to teach it to somebody else." Yeah. And I think that that goes to so many things in life, but it comes to our conversation here about the outside is that, you know, you may be able to backpack from here all the way up and down the, you know, the Appalachian trail or, uh, the Pacific rim trail or anything like that. But sometimes it's, it's just in slowing down to show somebody else how to do it, that you really, yeah 
kind of get those lessons that you've kind of left on the on the table. Yeah, it's it's guide it's guide lesson one oh one, and I totally agree. The Lord's Lord's sanctifying us through that process, and uh, that slowing down is 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 absolutely necessary for for you to be for you to uh, basically be be transformed from an independent ranger you know, like mm-hmm. Aragorn into, into a guide. Now you've got to lead these hobbits around. And yeah. It's, uh, yeah. It's a lot slower work <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, when you're having to stop every two hours to eat. Yeah, so. it really is. You know, I have this, ep- <laughs> I have this epic memory of, uh, for, for some reason I got in the habit of taking one of my sons in particular out on an epic adventure once a year for a while there. And it was my, my second oldest son, Owen. And, um, one year, uh, there's this, there's this way back Creek, uh, tributary into my favorite, uh, river, which is the, is the Clearwater river. And this tributary is called Kelly Creek. And I really wanted to go to Kelly Creek. And so whenever I really wanted to go somewhere, I just would, uh, would come up uh, with a, a plan to go there and take one of my boys. And, um, and so Owen and I went to Kelly Creek and we hiked down, backpacked down this, uh, down the mountain to this uh, place to camp by Kelly Creek there. And, um, and it started to rain. And so we got into the tent and we were just kind of laying there, hanging out in the tent. The bugs are swarming around. Um, but I remember there was a moment where I, I, I thought through the process of slowing down. Um, and the Lord put these little curious tree frogs all over the roof of our tent and oh, they, wow. and they would, uh, they would get up on the top of the tent and they'd slide down in the water and they'd climb back up again. And so we just sat there on our back, laid there on our backs, me and my three-year-old, um, was just laid on our backs and just watched these little tree frogs having a, having a good old time. Uh, and I don't think I ever would have slowed down if it would have just been Liz and I, uh, or, or just myself, you know, I probably would have completely missed that moment. And he remembers that to this day. That's yeah. I have a similar experience. It, it's so interesting because it's like you bring somebody along on a hike with you who's only three foot tall you see things that you know as a group that you would never see as an adult um you know because um i remember we were walking we were looking for a waterfall um on this certain trail and i had no idea i'd never been there before and i was trying to follow the blaze markings on the trees and um so i'm going from tree to tree looking for yellow blazes and uh, one of my sons happened to take a picture of a um of one of these blazes at least that's what i thought until i came home and I um, put it on my computer and looked at what he had taken a picture of. And mm. there was a, a massive dragonfly that was sitting on the tree right below the blaze. And wow. that's what he had taken a picture of. He, he wasn't concerned about the blaze. And I had <laughs> totally missed it. Wow. Because I wasn't looking for it. You know? Yeah. But to have different eyes on the, you know, eyes on the team, it, it really gives you that ability to see so much more. You know, um, I've got, uh, I think, interest wise as well, like uh, one of my son's really got into stargazing um big time the last couple of years mm. and he can he can look at stars all through the sky and tell you their names and when they're going to show up and and which uh, you know which constellations they're part of and these are things that I you know I could point out Orion um that's kind of the only constellation I ever paid attention to because he was always up in the sky when I was hunting in October yeah but um other than that I mean now I mean I know all the planets and I know when they show and I could probably name three or four, you know, um, 
you know, just dozens of different uh, constellations, but it's all because my son and he brought that interest out. And it's something that I pay attention to, you know, that I, I used to just totally just, you know, just pass by and leave it, leave it on the table. That's awesome. Yeah, having a, so having enough time out there that your your kids find their own little niches that they're interested in. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, another another thing that we uh, that I mean, just looking back over the years, my oldest is eighteen now. Our youngest is one, um, and just seeing that we we have been, you know, life gets busy. Uh, and you talk about this in your in your uh, Middle Earth by Montero uh, story, talk about the inverse relationship between uh, money and number of kids, <laughs> which yeah. just resonated oh too, oh too well with me. Um, you know, there's, uh, there's a fair bit of, um, of constraints that you have when you sign up for having a good number of kids. And, um, and so uh, one of the things we, we have done pretty regularly, though, is just getting out to the swimming hole and getting out to the to the fishing, um, the fishing reservoir, you know, multiple times uh, a year. Um, and so I think finding those regular activities and just, and just making sure you get out a couple times in each season, uh, just so going outdoors doesn't become, you know, a once, a once a year kind of a thing, but it stays familiar. And, uh, and those places become a special place that become a kind of a special family place, our favorite swimming hole. Oh, we just know that place by the back of our hand. Um, and I think, you know, not that, not that this is totally necessary, but, you know, trying to raise a, a Christian family in today's world, we've just, we've decided to opt out of the public pool. And so that's forced us to go a little further to swim, but, um, the, the swimming holes are just, uh, they're beautiful, natural places. And, uh, we can, when the kids are having fun splashing in the water and playing in the sand and, and trying to dodge the, the yellow jackets, um, you just kind of see and experience all kinds of neat things. Yeah. And I like, I like the, that you, you added the seasonal aspect to that as well, because there's. It's, it's really a, a benefit to, to visit the same place in different seasons because it's almost like you're visiting a whole new place. Mm. Um, we've we've discovered, you know, some of our places we've gone to in all four different seasons. And it's it's just been a blessing. I mean, it's you know, it's one thing to go to the beach when it's 100 degrees outside uh, in the middle of uh, July. But it's a it's another thing entirely to go down in November um, when uh, the nights are cold and. You know, hurricane season is over, but uh, that's when all of the the striper and the and the red drum are running off the off the coast. And, okay, you know, it's it's just a beautiful thing to to see how much things can change. You know, uh, my sons, I I remember the first time they saw a, uh, you know, when you get a bait swarm uh, out off uh, off the shore, and you'll have the, um, you know, the all the seabirds just dive bombing into the ocean, churning it up while the while the blues and the striper are underneath pushing the bait fish up to the shore yeah i mean just things like that you wouldn't see you know in the middle of summer usually but you know when you go and and you know in the late in the late you know seasons it's you know it's just a it's just a different it's a different face it's a different facet of uh of those special places yeah, absolutely. That that's a familiar memory that you're sharing. I one of the seasonal places or places we visited every season growing up was uh, one of the backwater creeks on the uh, Virginia side of the Chesapeake Bay. Um, okay. And so, uh, just watching those watching those menhaden uh, swarm and and catching blue crabs off the dock posts. Um, yeah. And the summer the summer with the mosquitoes coming out in the evening and the and these massive velvet ants. 
just kind of walking through the the crabgrass and the sandy soil and comparing that to the winter, which is just kind of windy and bleak. Uh, I think you're right. I think the Lord's seasons um, are really uh, a really a true blessing to explore. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I don't think it's an accident that God, the major feasts that He put, you know, in the Old Testament for His people, they they were seasonal. They were seasonal feasts. You know, they were spaced out on purpose so that the people would, you know, they would celebrate, you know, in the spring, they would celebrate in the midsummer, you know, during the first fruits and they would celebrate at the end of harvest. And, you know, these were all times of joy and Thanksgiving times to celebrate what God had done. Um, and, and all of them, there is that aspect of connecting them to, you know, what God had done for them, you know, in the world. And the fact that their harvests were, were built around it, um, their fruits and the way that they gathered and the way that they had their connection to the land you know, was, was a big part of what you know, they came to celebrate when they came to celebrate before the Lord. Yeah, that's good. You know, another, another thing that has, has been, I think, successful in, in our church family here, um, some men years ago, before, before we were in this area at all, a couple of dads and some good friends of ours, his dad uh, and and friends organized this thing that they came to be calling uh, future men. And they'd have these future men camps. And, and sometimes it'd be a pack mule train taking it up into the mountains and teaching boys oh, wow. kind of mule train types of skills. Sometimes it was out on the, his ranch where they were learning more livestock and, and horse type of work. Um, and by the time I showed up, it became more of a, um, a kind of a long weekend of, of outdoor, um, survival and outdoor skill training in, in a, in a wild setting. And so we would go up to the, we'd go up to the North Fort Clearwater, which that's one of our special family places to get up there at least once a year. And, um, and when it's been, you know, the, the blessing of having, uh, other like-minded families uh, that are doing this with you is just is manifold. Um, Absolutely, you know yeah. the other other dads and moms are going to bring different skills to the table. This happened to be a father and son uh, type of camp out, and so you know different dads who uh, maybe were expert fly fishermen or medics or knot tires. And so we would, we'd have a, a future men camp out and then six or seven dads that would be teaching a different skill over the course of the weekend. And the kids would, would take every class and then have some free time to, to fish or swim or to, to kind of paddle around in the river. And then in the morning and evening there, uh, other dads would have signed up to give the, the morning or evening exhortation. And we'd have, awesome. have some have some exhortation on the campfire and and, and bring some song sheets and, and sing a few hymns. Um, that that was really rich um, and meaningful uh, time for especially my oldest three. Yeah, I I love that. That's something that my wife and I learned early is that when we went on camping trips with all our kids, it was just it was fun for them, but it was a lot of work for us. And we found that the missing ingredient was to bring other people, you know, like even if it meant more kids, just having another pair of adults, even just one pair would significantly lighten the load on everybody that was there. And, Absolutely. Uh, you know, because you just you'd have, you know, the ability to to kind of, you know, rest and, and enjoy yourself, you know, and the work was spread out a little bit more. And yeah, 
you know, and then, like you said, I mean, especially when there's people who love the Lord and, and then share, you know, share your, your, your joy. I mean, worshiping God, uh, around a campfire is, is something special. Oh man. Um, it really is. Um, and as well as, you know, just getting out and I mean, when you're sitting on top of a rock, you know, um, with miles of view all around because you're at elevation, it just, it puts, it puts worship in, in, in your heart and you just want to sit there and just ponder. And when you got somebody that you can look over at, and then just kind of give that Jeremiah Johnson nod to, you know, <laughs> where they know and you know that it's amazing, you know. Yes. And that's, that's you know, it's I, it, I think it's meant to be shared. It's We're not meant to go out on mountains all by ourselves. We're supposed to go with people yeah. and enjoy them together, you know. And so I totally agree with you on that one. Yeah, you know, and for for the maybe for the listeners who are uh, married without children or listeners who are single, uh, doing this doing this with your buddies, uh, going out with your uh, with your spouse, just uh, you know, normalizing getting out and enjoying it. I I think doing it as soon as you can. I I can think back to a couple of times where we'd go out camping a lot with my oldest, and then my oldest started to go out with just him and his buddies. And I remember at first I was, mm-hmm. I was a bit nervous. Um, he started camping out with a couple of friends up on their property. So it was close to the, close to the house in case they needed to come back for some reason. Uh, but then he, he and a, uh, a few buddies had a proposal to just hike all the way from this little town up here down to the Valley along this old railroad track, uh, grade. Um, yeah. and I was kind of nervous about it at first, uh, but we decided to go ahead and, and they just, it became their own. All, <laughs> all of a sudden they had this epic adventure together. And I think that really kind of freed him up to feel confident in, in being an explorer. Um, and that's, yeah. and that's really what one of the main, one of my main goals is that, uh, all of my kids become some type of explorer. And hopefully that, that there's a, Hopefully there's an aspect of God's creation that they're, that they're very fearlessly interested in exploring. Absolutely, boy. Uh, that's, that's one of my favorites as well. Like when I look at the outside, I see it in kind of two ways. There is, you know, I think we can talk about this later, but there is like a, there is a, there is an aspect of it that, that should take place at your home. You know, you should have a stewardship yes. relationship with your home, your yep. own land that you live on and the way that you nurture it, where you're inviting not just to other people, but to nature itself. You know, yep. it should be a place where the birds and the bees and, and the sycamore trees and everything likes to hang out on your property. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also it's that going out. It's um, I, I remember I was at a lecture one time where this guy was talking about uh, the Lord of the Rings and he was talking specifically about the Ents. And he, he talked about how the ents came to lose the nth wives hmm. and and uh what tolkien did with the ents was very fascinating in the sense that the ent wives were very they were very dom- domestic they wanted to settle down and garden hmm. but the ents themselves wanted to constantly roam and to explore and to to you know to just to just go. Um, and it, that's ultimately what caused them to lose, uh, one another because, uh, wow. you know, there was these two sides, you know, that was represented in the ends, uh, where some wanted to stay and cultivate and some wanted to go and explore. And, um, you know, the problem came is when they didn't marry those two things together. Right. And I think that that's something inside of all people and us as men, especially, and it's, you know, we should nurture both of them because of, you know, a kid, you know, like we started this conversation, a kid who is at home too much, 
you know, that is kind of has that Jacob, uh, you know, strain in him where yep. he's a mama's boy and he stays in home. Yep. That's not a good thing, but it's also not a good thing to be an Esau type where you're always out hunting and you're rough and tumble. You know, there's, there's a meeting in the middle that we should strive for. Absolutely. And, um, you know, that, that's a big thing for us as well. Um, I, um, you know, when we travel, even for uh, regular trips, uh, like if we're going on vacation, that's not maybe a, you know, a camping trip or a overland adventure or anything like that. Um, I got one in particular, I think of like, uh, my wife being from Hawaii meant that, um, we've, we've been out there quite a few times to visit family. And, um, the last time we were there, um, the, the day we got off of the plane, um, the first place we laid our heads down was, um, in a, in a tent. We, uh, we actually went camping, wow. uh, with some, with some friends and we spent two nights, uh, just, just camping on the beach in Hawaii, which is, you know, it's not usually what most people go to Hawaii to do, That's awesome. but it was, it was amazing. You know, I mean, we got to go catch ghost crabs just like we would catch oh, them here on man. the Atlantic. Yeah, you know, at night, and uh, you know, I got to, you know, see mongoose running around just like gray squirrel would run around here. I mean, and uh, you know, uh, coconuts and all that different kinds of thing. Just really getting your hands dirty in a different kind of dirt. Yeah, on the other side of the world. Yeah, you know, it's like wherever you go, you should really make it your point to really see where you're at. I like that you know, a get lot. Out, yeah, get out away from the, um, you know, the. The things that are just like at home, you know, don't right. eat in the same restaurants, you know, don't, you know, go to, you know, the, the, it's like kind of what Gordon, uh, what Gordon said last week about the flat floors and fluorescent lights and yeah. the fine dining, you know, like get, get out and see what makes that place special and unique. Right. There's no, no place is boring, you know, yeah. no place is boring. Just like we, you know, say in the ride and the dance, you know, to be bored is to be boring. Yeah. You know, that's really it. I mean, go find something exciting because it's out there. There's definitely something that you can explore, even if you just got a, a short layover. Um, I, we had a layover in Texas on my way back home from Idaho last week. And me and my buddy Alec uh, from Ireland, um, because we were in Texas, we needed to find something very Texas to do. And, <laughs> that's right. Um, go rope his some wife cattle. Said that we couldn't, uh, we couldn't fly helicopters and shoot hogs with machine guns in the air. And, <laughs> um, so we ended up, uh, just getting out and, uh, walking around a little bit, enjoying the 105 degree dry temperatures. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, just, just enjoying it. I mean, it was hot, but it was different, you know, was different yeah. from Ireland, different from Virginia, different from Idaho, you yep. know, but his own adventure. No, that's good. Uh, you know, one of my other main big categories was, um, either, either finding and or sharing your obsession. And I think, okay. uh, I think we can, and I think you're getting at it a little bit there. Uh, one of the things I think that we, at least I think I've misinterpreted in the past is this idea of having a balance between work, work and family life. Um, and, and that's, can, I continue to explore that and, and I think I'm getting better at it and, and figuring out that balance. But, um, if you're obsessed about something, uh, like, like Jeeps, like your, XJ night from 1984. Uh, yeah. if, if you're, if you're John Rimmer and you got this third generation Jeep for, passed down from grandparents to parents to you, uh, and you're going to be making a four wheel drive or, or vehicle, a part of your kid's experience. Um, and, and for me, a, just kind of an obsessive bird watcher, birding is kind of part of our family experience. Everyone knows dad's going to ask mom, 
uh, to to trade seats or I'm going to pull the car over so we can see some bird uh, that uh, that is on a road trip or, or maybe just <laughs> even going to Costco. And so I think yeah. I don't think that parenthood needs to be, you know, you don't have to throw your obsessions away. Of course, as the Lord is sanctifying you and those obsessions aren't healthy for the family. That's one thing. But, you know, striking that balance between domestic and wild, but also just digging in and just bringing your kids along as part of the team. Um, and I, that really came across to me in your, in your, uh, middle earth, uh, by Montero story. Huh. I'm glad that you were able to find that. I, uh, I looked around for a while to try to find the links and I don't know why it took me a minute. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I'm glad that it's still coming up, uh, online. And, um, my friend, uh, Brian, he, he runs a magazine called the gearhead project. And I had, um, actually put out um the story on that um it was an online car magazine and i don't know why it slipped my mind the last time we were talking i think it was just because you know I, it was a long week of uh of being in class and all those kinds of things but yeah i had put it up there and it's still up there um you know for people to enjoy um but yeah it, honestly it's a it's an unfinished story in a lot of ways it's finished in real life but it's not finished in the writing of it um there's still, uh, you know, the, the final part was never written up, but, yeah. uh, you know, one of these days, uh, you know, I kind of took a break from, from writing it to learn how to write better, I guess. You yeah. Know, so I could, uh, finish it, finish it well. Well, and, and you know that, that I think what you, what you are doing in that story, you're creating, you're creating through, uh, two great sources, right? One, God's, God's incredible, uh, uh, creation in, in the Southern Appalachians. And I'm so thankful to hear someone say Appalachian. That just warms my, my soul. <laughs> You're saying it correctly. We're from the same part of the world. Um, and so that's a great source, the, the biodiversity and ecology of the Blue Ridge Mountains, but also, uh, Tolkien's, uh, writing. And so two yes. great sources for, for inspiration, and turning that into an adventure story, I think, uh, turning into a story period, uh, I think uh, that really, I, I, I can't remember how you put it in the in the first part, but uh, taking some of Tolkien's themes and just adding these necessary pieces, you, you just, uh, you had your kids' curiosity just full on. They were fully engaged uh, just with anticipation. Uh, and yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, everybody wants to be a part of a story because we ultimately, I think, deep down know that we are. Yeah, we are. We all are characters in a story. We're not the main characters, which makes it all the more fun because it's not about us. And we get to we get to watch at the same time. We are actors on the stage, I mm -hmm. guess you would say. Yeah. And the the whole thing with Tolkien, I I, I fell in love with Tolkien. Um, I'm one of the I'm a public school kid, so I didn't even know who he was until the movies came out. So I, I was kind of a breach birth uh, when it came to, <laughs> to, to Tolkien. You know, I'm one of the unwashed people who actually enjoys the movies, um, you know, but that's because I, I, I wouldn't know Tolkien any other way, yeah. um, you know, but it, it got me onto his writing. And what I found in his writing was a guy who really, I felt, who had a way of making you love something that you'd never even seen, but wish that you could, hmm. you know, he talked about a world that made you want to love the world that you were in yeah. because it came from, you know, the raw material, the same raw material. Um, you know, like he writes, uh, I, I think it's in his fairy story, um, uh, essay, but he talks about how, you know, 
fairy stories, these imaginative tales. You know, they're not escapist literature in the sense that they take us away from the real world or from, you know, from reality. But in fact, they teach us and train us to appreciate reality more. And that word appreciate literally meaning that when we are out in the real world, we see clearer, we smell deeper, we taste things, you know, better Mm. because we've been trained by the story to pay more attention. Yeah. And that's that's good. Yeah. That to me is really what, um, why, uh, when I said, you know, I named the story middle earth by Montero is just, I wanted my boys to, to just see that, you know, when they see the world as a story and they enter into it, they're going to pay more attention and get more out of it. Not only in the experience, but also in the retelling and the, and the remembrance. That's really an important part as well. Yeah, I'd, I'd never thought of that type of concept until I was reading a book. I'm a, a longtime science fiction and fantasy reader, also uh-huh. a public school kid, but my dad was a Tolkien fanatic. He reads Lord of the Rings every year. Um, <laughs> but I was, I, it wasn't until maybe a couple years ago, I was reading a book called The Hobbit Party um, by, oh, God. Golly, I'm forgetting the guy's names. A couple guys with the Discovery Institute in Seattle wrote it. Um, and it's it's kind of a making a case that uh, implicit in Tolkien's writing is 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 kind of some sort of of political approach that's different. Um, but one of the things I got out of the book the most was the idea that you just communicated was that it could be escapist if you're just laying in the basement reading sci-fi all day. But uh, one thing that I found was when, when a writer just does such a, a noble job of describing you know, whatever it might be, some alien plant species or some other, some other type of, of natural feature, um, it really just enhances once, once you're out in nature, again, that experience of seeing things, you're starting to see things through fresher, uh, more sensitive eyes and with a more, all your senses are now heightened because you're looking for that richness that's been communicated in writing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's and we're we're reading uh through the fellowship of the ring right now actually with the kids and uh we've just entered into Lothlorien. Oh, and wow. the Malorn trees, these beautiful golden bowed um trees with white bark, it 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 almost sounds like a sycamore in the in the sense that they have that smooth bark and it's silver and the 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 leaves turn a golden color in the winter and they never shed. Hmm. Um but when they do shed in the spring the the forest floor is a golden while the 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 treetops are a you know a a bright green and mm. uh legolas as he's walking through there he just you know he's describing this and this is me reading this a few nights ago and i'm just thinking to myself i cannot wait to get out and see something <laughs> like this you know like this is yeah you know it's because it's like i have a silver maple in the backyard that i love to see in thunderstorms where we've been having thunderstorms the last few nights. And the beautiful thing about this tree is that it's got a, it's got a, a beautiful green, but in the thunderstorms, it'll flip all those leaves over and yeah. you'll see the silvery underside of the leaves. And yep. it's just a beautiful contrast. And then I've got a, um, I've got a, a pin oak as well. That's massive. It's, I think it's probably a 200 year old tree oh, and 
man. And it's it's got the deep green, um, you know, these these slender um, these slender leaves in the in the spring that are a deep dark green, but then it'll get these very uh, neon green uh, new growth that'll come in, and then uh, late summer it'll all turn to a like a darker greenish brown as the tree's getting ready to to go into the fall. And it's just the, the, those two trees are really the reason I bought my house. They're both, Oh, they're you're both speaking massive, my language, massive trees. Oh, wow. And I, you know, and I love them because when I read in Tolkien about his love there, there were two trees that were the first two lights of, of middle earth that, you know, the one was a, you know, even before the moon and the sun were made, the light that preceded them were the light of the two trees. And, you know, so I gave these two trees in my backyard, the same names, because that's what they look like to me. You know, wow. it's just these, two trees that just that's where my kids play um the front yard is uh, like a soccer field but it's in the <laughs> summer it's super hot yeah and they can go in the backyard where it's 10 degrees cooler under the shade of those two trees and because they grow together these two trees are probably 20 feet apart okay but they've grown together in the sense that when you're standing between the two trees and you look up there's probably a 55 foot ceiling inside these trees, like a cathedral. Wow. Because they, there's no branches there because there's no sunlight that gets through. Yeah. And it's just a beautiful, I, I absolutely, it's one of my favorite places to be in my yard is just between those trees. Um, just enjoying, you know, that, that shade it's, it's, it's awesome. That is cool. Yeah. Uh, looking for those little spots in your yard, you just kind of find yourself wanting to go to that, that place all the time. Um, I had one other idea here as we start to, uh, start to wrap up here, John. Um, my wife's a historian, my wife, her, her major interests are history. And so we kind of meet in this place of, I love biology and she loves history. And so we, well, I, I, I can remember kind of a poignant moment where our, where our interest paths crossed in a really meaningful way. We are on one of our many, um, cross country or half the way cross country road trips, having family on the East coast and living out here in the Pacific Northwest. And we have good friends in the, in Nebraska. And so we were, I can't remember if we were passing through or if we were just visiting them in Nebraska and on, on our way home, we stopped, I think it was in South Dakota. She'd correct me. Um, we were looking for anything related to Laura Ingalls Wilder. Okay. And so we ended up at a cemetery, uh, where, uh, where the author uh, was buried. And and so my wife loves cemeteries. She just loves to uh, read the tombstones and think about that era of time and just kind of connect important uh, historical events to that era and these people in their lives and, and just looking for clues about their family life. And so she was, she was there exploring and right, right there's a little dirt road there. And just on the other side of the road was a beautiful pastoral field. And the grass is maybe a foot and a half, two feet tall. It's a beautiful June day. And, and the bobolinks are, are on this little tiny uh, fence that's, uh, that's at the edge of the road and they're just singing their hearts out. And so, uh, we kind of had that, uh, moment of, you know, the writer of this story and all these people who were alive during that time in the 19th century were also listening to these bobolinks singing. And so that's oh, wow. to me that yeah. just, that, that really hit home in, in kind of a deep and meaningful way. Uh, the Lord has integrated all of, all of the things we get to take dominion over, uh, in a remarkable way. And so it's, it's, it's a joy to kind of see those connections. And, and so if you have a, if you have a kid who's super interested in, in history or any other thing that, that doesn't have to, 
to be set apart from or or in in opposition to wanting to be outside exploring at the same time absolutely yeah it that's uh that's 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 just perfect because that that's the same way that we are as well i mean i think virginia is the sweet spot for all of this there's so much history here yeah and there's so much biodiversity there's so many different habitats those really are the the key mixtures that take us outside and there's something for everybody like you said i mean when you got one kid who likes to catch everything that he sees you got another kid who just likes to run wild and 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 swing from the treetops like a monkey and then you got other kids who (laughs) uh you know they they like to fish and, and frolic around the water. And then you got, you know, the little girls who like to chase butterflies around them. You know, it's, it's all these different things and everybody's got something, something for them. And that's actually, I think what's great. It's, you know, nobody, nobody can lo- can love everything as well as it deserves. Yeah. And when you've got a whole troop of, of people made in the image of God who love God, you know, and you spread them out, there's so, you know, there's, there's more love to go around, you know, uh, yeah. appreciation for the things that God has given. You know, I, I, I absolutely love that. That's, um, yeah. Oh, man. no, that's a good way to, to, I like that. And that applies to the family and to the, and to your church community and to whatever, if you're homeschooling, if you have a homeschool community or, or a, a private Christian school community, I, I like that. I like that phrase, uh, or way you put that just now, it, nothing uh, nothing can be uh, loved or explored fully by one person, but when you have a group, all of a sudden, all kinds of amazing things uh, happen. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Feast. That's there's. You know, doesn't matter how much food you have. It's never a feast when it's just one person. Yeah. You know, you need a lot of people across the table to enjoy and talk and taste. You know. Yeah. Amen. John. Uh, John. Anything else you'd like to throw throw out there for our listeners today? Yeah, I have one more thing. If if we uh, I brought it up briefly earlier, but sometimes I think we assume that uh, that all of this stuff is out there, you know, out away from us. And in some senses, it it is. I mean, whether you're living in the city or the suburbs or or just in a place where you don't have a lot, um, you know, you're kind of landlocked in and you don't get to see much. But I think that's something that I've come to appreciate recently uh, my wife has really um been a blessing here and and honestly it's another another lesson um that i've kind of drawn out of tolkien as well whenever i i read tolkien or bunyan or any of these writers there always seems to be this archetypical homely house that Mm. the adventurers will stop into and the ones that you remember are places like you know bayorn's house in the hobbit or Rivendell, or, uh, you know, we talked about um, Karad, uh, Galadas, and uh, Lothlorien, and you've got these places that are just beautiful and known for their, their relationship with, with, um, with the world around them. They kind of, they're kind of fixtures of the landscape themselves. Yeah. They're not set apart from them. Yeah. And it's, uh, I think it's such a good contra contrast to this sterile suburban um, mindset to where you never in these stories would assume any of these places look like your typical neighborhood home. Yeah. But that said, I think that there is something that we can do in our typical neighborhood homes, which is to to try to pattern them off of places like Bag End or, you know, Bayorn's house, I think, uh, especially for, for some reason, that one has kind of been the one that I have always latched onto is mm. that, you know, it's, uh, my family's not the only ones who live here. You know, I want this to be a place where, 
everybody feels welcome, you know, and by everybody, I don't mean, uh, necessarily my neighbors, but I do mean, you know, the birds, the bumblebees, and, yeah, bumblebees, um, you know, uh, snakes, lizards, um, don't tell my wife, I just said the snakes, but I, I do like <laughs> seeing them uh, around. We've got lots of, with, with those big giant trees out back, we've probably got dozens of squirrels, um, that live in them. Um, we've had opossums that, uh, have shown up in the yard. Um, we've got a groundhog who comes around every year and tries to, uh, dig the foundation out from under my shed. <laughs> I mean, we just, there's, I even had a, a white tailed deer run down the middle of my street one time, you know, wow. and, um, while I was sitting out on the front porch, but it's, it's, it's kind of crafting your house in such a way that it invites all these things, whether it be with bird feeders or hummingbird feeders or gardens or just, you know, having trees and, and all these kinds of things. And I've got a I've got a great neighbor on one side who, you know, he's he's an older, older guy. He's retired. And every time we talk at the fence, he always asks me when I'm going to cut these trees down. And I always look at him and say, you know, I, I'm never touching these trees. They were here before me and I, I want them to be here after. And yeah, yeah, they make a lot of work, but that's kind of the point. It's that, you know, to have a, have a hospitality, you know, it, it comes, it grows out of the biblical practice of hospitality hmm. is that your home should be the kind of place where just stuff wants to be, Yeah, you know, and, yeah. uh, that means you got to take care of it. You've got to steward it and getting back to our kids. It's where you teach them, you know, it's where you teach them every day to be a part of something, to, to have their hands, you know, on, you know, what they are going to inherit. And I think that's really what it is to, to learn, to rule something you have to be taught. And, you know, we talked earlier about being guides and, and, and just being parents in a lot of ways, you know, us in particular will as husbands, you know, Mm -hmm. for husbands, you know, in the true sense, in the sense that we are set over top of a garden and this garden deserves our attention and our interests. And, you know, we pass that on to our children by teaching them to love the things even here at home. And, uh, you know, so I think that that's an important thing to keep in mind as well is that you don't have this clean break in your life between the wild and the, and the, and the home, Yeah, you know, the, the two should overlap Yeah, and, and they're, you'll enjoy both of them more when they do, I think. No, that's good. You know, kind of a vision of covenantal stewardship, uh, yeah. there. Fantastic. Yeah. Whether it be, you know, gardening or you know, um, raising some kind of animal, whether it just be a pet for fun or a dog or, or whether it's something like chickens or, you know, just things to see, you know, the natural world, to see the cycles of life, to see, you know, birth and death, to see, you know, the things that just come, the, you know, the, the hard work, but also the joys of all these kinds of things. It's just all those different flavors that you get to to taste by having, you know, having more, more characters in the story. I like that, you know, for, for us, for a time and it well, often is a, is just a pumpkin patch. We live in a pretty, yeah. we live in a small town, but it's pretty urbanized and, and we're in the, in the city limits. But I tell you what, that pumpkin patch come August, it is a forest and it's, <laughs> it's wild and it, 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 you know, it scrapes your skin when you try to get in there, but, and there are so many cool little insects and other creatures that are that are hiding down in there. And, and of course the hiding pumpkins among all the other plants that are growing up. So I like that having the, having the overlap between the wild and the the domestic, that's a really good theme um, that that's come through in our conversation today. I think we need to keep exploring that one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, John, I really appreciate your time. It's a, it's a joy to chat with you again and uh, look forward to uh, look forward to our next time. Absolutely. Will, this has been great. I uh, 
I didn't expect uh, expect to talk to you again so soon. Uh, you know, it was kind of bittersweet leaving Idaho for the last time for my MFA program. But uh, I'm I'm really thankful that you asked me to come come talk with you, and even if it was just us, and you know. It uh, call me anytime. Okay. And, uh, hope to see you guys uh, sometime soon in the future. Very good, John. Yeah. God bless you and your family. And uh, yeah, enjoy enjoy your your rich biodiverse uh, ho- home there in the Southern Appalachians. Absolutely, absolutely. And I'll be writing about it. So. Uh, and we'll and we'll uh, look forward to that too. <laughs> I hope so. I'm gonna find a place to put it, and so people can read it. So. Very good. All right. Take care, John. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Will. All right, we'll see ya. Thank you for listening. And remember, for all your homeschool science needs, go to noeoscience.com. That's N-O-E-O science.com.